Hey everybody, welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast. We are coming to you live from the Made Life Studios in Boulder, Colorado. Um, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm very excited to have on the show today Mr. John McGeehan, who is the founder and president of The Dorm. Um, and uh, John received his master's degree in social work from New York University with a specialty certification in substance abuse intervention, and related co-occurring disorders. As a native of the Northeast, John moved abroad to Tokyo, Japan during his teenage years. It was there that he began his work as an interventionist and placement specialist for families looking for therapeutic alternatives outside of Japan. After over a decade of working with families and witnessing the transformation of his adolescent and young adult clients, John founded The Dorm, which has since set a new standard in the world of young adult treatment. He is a regular contributor to school-based prevention for secondary schools and parent associations throughout the Northeast and abroad. John grew up in Westport, Connecticut, and is the middle child of four sisters. We share that in common, by the way. As he likes to say, I was destined to become a therapist as I have been listening since a very early age. In his off time, John is an avid sailor, a rock climber. He lives with his wife and twin sons in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Welcome to the I Can't Help You podcast, Thank my you new for friend, Mr. Me. John McGann. Absolutely. Thank you, Danny, for having me. I'm glad, happy to have you here. Uh, in full disclosure, John and I met three days ago. We may have met somewhere else, but we actually sat and had a conversation three days ago. John came by the Collegiate Recovery Center on campus and, and, and came to say hello. And we both had this, this kind of reaction like, oh, my God, we're finally getting to meet because I think both of us had mutual contacts throughout the years. I said, you guys got to meet. You got to meet. I'd heard about the dorm. I've been super intrigued by the dorm. Um, and then we sat down, we met, and we we're like, yeah, this is why people wanted us to meet, because we got a lot to talk about. Absolutely. So that led to coming on to the podcast, and it's it's great to have you here. Absolutely. It's great to be here. here. Full disclosure, Danny actually hopped into our meeting. <laughs> I've never had somebody hop into a meeting before, so <laughs> it was love at first sight. I mean, you really had me at the at Well, the would hop. you, you might want to explain that to people. I don't know if they know what hopping into a meeting would actually be. You literally hopped out of your office <laughs> into the hallway to greet me. I did. And I think when I actually saw you, you were a couple of feet off the ground. A couple of feet? Yes. So I still got some air time. You did. That's great. You did. Yeah, no, I was, I was excited and I, I was standing awkwardly in the other room and you guys were talking. I'm like, I think I'll just hop into the other room. I don't know what came over me. It was very well received. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, I mean, it was the first actually. I'm Good. pretty sure I'd never hopped into a meeting. Before. I feel very fortunate. Yeah, no, it was really great. Um, so man, you've had, uh, you know, quite a story. I don't know anybody who, you know, kind of spent their teenage years in Japan and got into this work. How did you get into substance use disorder work in Japan? How did that happen? Absolutely. So, you know, like many of us, I, I, I needed this type of support when I was a teenager. I, I as a, you mentioned, I grew up in Westport, Connecticut. My father came home one day. I was 13 years old and said, guys, we're moving to Tokyo. Um, I think I had been as far as Orlando, Florida yeah. at that point in yeah. my life. So Tokyo was quite a foreign place, concept, you name it. Yeah. Um, you know, showed up in, in a foreign city, um, foreign town. Nobody spoke English. Um, I hadn't experienced sushi yet before. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for me, and this is really telling in terms of my own story and, and how I landed in this field, you know, what we, what we had next to our apartment was a vending machine full of beer. 
And alcohol was something that was readily available and accessible in vending machines all throughout the city. Wow. And at that point in my life, that was very much a source of comfort. Well, especially, I would guess, being so new to a new place, plus being an adolescent, you know, the comfort of beer. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So ran with that. um, Actually found some trouble in Tokyo that, you know, for many Americans, it would be something that you'd experience more of a slap on the wrist back in, you know, the early 90s in Tokyo. They took certain things very seriously um, and ended up relocating, leaving Japan when I was 14. My family actually stayed there. I landed back in a boarding school in upstate New York. Um, Later went on to start my own recovery at the age of 19 out in California. Um, And what I quickly learned in the world of recovery is the power of service, the power of helping others. Um, Started quickly sponsoring people, started quickly being of service, realized not only how much I liked it and how much it sort of filled me up, um, but when it came to working with young people in particular, I, I, I felt like people were getting better and I was helping others and, and, and it was working. Um, and ironically, the, the gentleman that was sort of spearheading me getting out of Tokyo when I was 14 um, ended up being my biggest advocate and bringing me back as an interventionist to work with teenagers in a very similar position that I was in at that point in my life. Um, and it was ironic because you, you had sort of this building treatment community in the U.S., and in Japan in the early 90s, they were very much in the Stone Age when it came to treatment. So mm-hmm. my first intervention, as an example, was on a 16-year-old that was medicated in a hospital for a year. Whoa. And that was the best treatment money could buy. Right. right. Um, and so families were sort of watching this going, you know, if our options are either to sedate our child, right, right so they didn't get in trouble and the right. family wouldn't be deported. And sequester um, someplace, yeah. What else is available? Yeah. Um, and so for a Japanese national to call upon, I think at the time I was 21, yeah. 22, a 22-year-old American to help do an intervention on the family, to help place them in the U.S., and then that sort of case management piece, which very much has become part of sort of our world now, but... Back then, it, it really didn't exist. Right, right. Um, so I, I started watching the types of families that I was working with, and, and as we as we know more and more, it's it's really never just addiction. Right. Um, there's typically always a co-occurring piece to it, it, it if not primary. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I, I decided to relocate back to New York and go to NYU and get my graduate degree. Um, because I, I didn't feel like I was adequately servicing some of these teenagers and young adults that had very complex issues mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. needed someone that that really understood it from mm-hmm. all aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, so it inspired me to, to get my graduate degree. Um, later went on to work with Aspen Education Group and, and that sort of helped, you know, outline this, this wonderful world of, of really creative, inspirational resources that we have around the country. Um, and what I learned living in New York City is that all of this great stuff is happening outside of major cities. Mm-hmm. Why not create something that was just as relational, mm. that was just as attachment-based, mm. that was just as creative in its thinking and application as you'd find in Utah in the middle of Manhattan? Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's really inspired me to, to start this. We founded it in uh, 2010. Wow. Yeah. What a what a journey, uh, you know. And, and as you're talking about it, what what kind of made me think about it is like, you know, 
of course, we have so many choices in our life in terms of direction and what classes or business I'm going to start or whatever. So oftentimes I look at that and I go, well, you know, I'll personally in my own history look at, well, I made this choice to do this or that. But in reality, I kind of when I when I zoom out and I'm listening to someone else's like your story, I'm like what set of circumstances have to happen that could make it more clear that like this person was on a certain path, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the path was, I don't want to say completely chosen for somebody, but yeah. but I think oftentimes the path does appear. Yeah. And then, you know, if the circumstance is right, we can actually see it and step into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like it's not written in some handbook that it's like, okay, go to Japan, yeah. <laughs> drink some beer, get in trouble in Japan, go to another place. Like it's, it's a bizarre incredible story that's that happens to be true right and and it's so it fascinates me people's path and how they land to where they land so thanks for sharing it i'm just grateful that i didn't have the opportunity to write it yeah because if i would have written this i would have completely sold myself short isn't that amazing so i think that's the power of perspective to be able to step back and and know that something someone else is you know overseeing at least my experience it's hard to deny that when yeah. I look back in my own experience. And it's it's powerful to be on this side of it with that kind of perspective. Absolutely. And to be able to share that. Absolutely. With, with and how many times we think that, you know, the end of our life or when we get in trouble or when we first move into a different situation, in that case, going to a boarding school or having, you know, having to be removed from a situation or go to another or whatever, the feelings that associate both for parents and, and for, for the patient or whomever is in that situation is this is the end, right? Like this yeah. is the end of something like fun's over, this is how blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Little do we know that oftentimes it's the beginning of a journey that we can't even begin to, like you said, we would sell ourselves short if we were trying to write it ourselves. Absolutely. That's a remarkable and thing. I think that's the message that, that at least I think many of us in this field us especially at, at the dorm try and relay not only to the individual but also to the family. Yeah. Understanding that this is just the beginning. And yeah. this can be a yes. new chapter. And not only that, but your your experience does not have to be centered in shame. Mm. Your experience experience can can actually be your greatest asset. Yes. You know, I look at my own experience to share that, you know, that the guy that was instrumental in, in getting me out of the city of right. Japan right. was actually the most instrumental in getting me back to be able to service families that he didn't know what to do with. Yeah, you know the schools yeah. that I had trouble with ended up bringing me back to run their prevention curriculums, and you're able to go full circle. And I think your message has a bit more depth and and, and weight to it, considering you've lived it. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, what, what, tell me about a little bit about the dorm. Let's, let's hear about that. I mean, you know, I think we had a kinship right away. Cause you know, when you take people who have lived in a city, you're in a big city. When we started aim house, it was like in Boulder, are you out of your mind? Like you can't do this here. You need to be in Coeur d'Alene, Utah, Idaho, yep. or you need to be in, you know, St. George or someplace where you're away from all of the influences when you're away from all this stuff. And to me, 20 years ago, that felt counterintuitive. Yeah. Like there was like, well, okay, great. So we're teaching people how to live in rural communities. No offense against a rural community. If that's yeah. where you're from, that's great. But isn't the goal, should not the goal of treatment be to learn how to access resources in your community or to have a community? Mm-hmm. You know, because the bias for me is that that's where the healing happens is in the, in the form of community, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, 
And then, and then now, years later, you're, you're in New York City doing this, and then in, in Washington, D.C. Talk a little bit about kind of what led the path to deciding, yeah, we're going to do the dorm, and, and talk a little bit about the dorm, if you don't mind. Absolutely. It's, it's a great point you bring up, because you can imagine we get that question all of the time. Yeah. Um, how could I ever send my son or daughter to right. treatment in New York City? In and yeah. We just opened up in Washington, D.C., and we're right in the heart of DuPont Circle, right? Yeah. Um, and, and to your point, community is where healing happens. I'm a big believer that community is medicine. Um, it's being able to access it, hmm. right? And um, the, the way the dorm started is, is, as I said, I was traveling around, visiting a lot of different programs, experiencing really wonderfully creative work happening in, in very rural places. And, you know, these folks would really connect to, to, to magic of in the environment and, and sort of the relational approach and the milieu and the community. And the question is, how do I translate that back into New York City? Because that's where I want to be. That's where I want to go to college. That's where my family is, you name yeah. it. Um, and I found there was such a gap between, you know, these programs that existed in more of rural America and the resources that existed in Manhattan um, you know, 10 years ago, there were not a lot of creative resources happening in New York City. There, there's probably 40 or 50. I don't actually know if that's accurate, but I'm assuming therapists just about on every block yeah. in Manhattan. Yeah. And 10 years ago, all of them did 50-minute therapy sessions mm. and were very analytically oriented mm. and trained. Um, very few were stepping outside of their office, were doing that sort of... Um, case management type work that we know really works for this aid group. Um, so what I did is I put together a, a team of clinical social workers. Um, we'd work in partnership with psychologists and psychiatrists to really help bring the treatment plan that they were trying to work with in their office to life outside in the community. And that could have been in their homes, that could have been on college campuses, that could have been anywhere. Um, and what we found for a lot of these folks is they knew exactly what to say when they were on a couch, but the minute you took them out in the community yeah. and asked them to exercise some of the skills that mm. they were learning in office, they couldn't. Right. You yeah. know, So we were providing that accountability, we were providing that structure, and most importantly, we were clinicians ourselves. So we spoke that same language, so the, there was really a continuity in what they were working on in office and outside of the office. Um, so that has since evolved into a full comprehensive um, outpatient program where we have full day treatment, we have evening program, we have independent living across the street. Um, another aspect which has really been close to my heart is we have a clubhouse model as well. Um, there's a great place called Fountain House in Manhattan. I don't know if you're familiar with it, yeah, but um, yeah. they sort of invented this clubhouse model and I toured them probably five or six years ago, and they have an entire city block. I mean, it's like YMCA for mental health. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and the challenge was their average age is in their 50s. Right. And so our peer group coming in at 21, 22 stepped in, and it just wasn't necessarily their, right. their peer group, their right. community. So we took that concept in addition to the, the, the more traditional outpatient treatment um, and included a clubhouse model where folks could come and build community and we can help assist them in addressing their social anxiety and addressing how to create different clubs um, independent of treatment. Um, really stepping into this idea of creating friendships as well during outpatient treatment. I think traditional outpatient treatment, it's like you're here for treatment, not to meet people. Mm. 
And yet we know that healing happens in community and we know the prevalence of social anxiety in this day and age. So how do we also help them connect and create friendships and healthy dynamics? And what does that look like? And running alongside of that experience. So um, I think really what it's been, we're coming up on, on 10 years here this summer. Congratulations. Is, is watching to see what the community has really been asking for mm-hmm. um, and setting up you know, treatment around what the specific needs are. And I think that's really been our our secret sauce. Working with what comes to you. Now, do most of your clients come from all over the country or is it mostly New York or is it, you know? I'd say at this point about 60% um, are from the tri-state area, 40% are from out of state. Mm-hmm. I think over the years, the, the numbers coming from out of state are certainly growing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working much more closely with universities now. So mm-hmm. I think that inherently causes um, you know, folks to be interested in us from out of state as well. Um, I think that the biggest myth for me that I've, that I've seen is that somehow, um, you know, you cannot access treatment at this level mm. in the same city as your parents live in. Mm. Um, I think that's sort of a bias that can exist that you actually need to, to, to leave the state mm-hmm. or be 3,000 miles away mm-hmm. in order to really individuate from, our, from mm-hmm. your family. And mm-hmm. I'd say at any given time, about 25% of our families are even from the local Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So extremely close. It causes us, as you can imagine, sure. to very thorough family work. Um, But because of that built-in community, I think it adds to not only the support for the individual, but for the support for the entire family dynamic. Mm, Nice. Do you think um, that today's young adults are more troubled than they were in the past? Or do you think that it's just a relative... Because, I mean, let's be honest, every generation kind of thinks that the generation coming up behind them, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that we're doomed. Yeah. And, you know, this generation doesn't get X, Y, and Z or, you know, what's popular today is, well, media has, you know, ruined a generation. Yeah. And, you know, people who have listened to the show know where I fall and all that. But I'm curious your your take on that. Like, do you think things are really that much different today or or is it relative? You know, what's, your, what's your perception of that? I think it is different. Um, you know, when I look at when I first got into this field, is going on about 18 years, um, things felt more simple, mm. um, more straightforward. Um, I think what we're seeing in particular is a much greater prevalence of folks having their first psychotic break, mm. um, much more so than I saw even 10 years ago. Mm. Um, more primary mental illness, um, a much more fragile brain. Mm. Um, you know, certainly the entitlement still exists. Um, you know, I love this term lawnmower parenting. Mm-hmm. I think it, it solidifies what we see quite a bit. And it's just removing all these obstacles from um, an individual's life so they don't have that ability to create their own resilience. Mm. Um, and then being thrown into university settings where they've been coddled for many, many years. Um, and we even hear it from universities where they're feeling like the population is changing mm. and they're feeling like they're being asked to do much more in the treatment realm that they're not adequately prepared for. Mm. And the way in which young people are acting out today is very different mm. than it was 10, 20 years ago. Mm. Um, 
So I, I think that's sort of the shift that, mm. that I'm seeing. What's changed, though? What do you think's changed? Technology? I, I think technology is certainly a contributing factor. I mm. think pressure in general. Mm. I think folks, you know, you look at sort of the, 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 the marketplace, if you will, the landscape of actually graduating from college. I think an undergraduate degree nowadays is worth very little versus what it was worth 10 or 20 years ago. True, yeah. I think a lot of folks um, are, are putting a tremendous amount of emphasis on where they go to school, mm. yet you see folks graduating from Princeton, it being just as difficult mm. to get a job mm. as many other universities. For sure. Um, I think for a lot of these young people, they watch their parents having been successful in many different arenas, and at least for the folks that, that we see, having a difficult time starting mm. from the bottom mm. and working your way up. What does that actually look like? Mm. What's the trajectory for that? How does it work? What kind of skills I need? Um, and then lastly, the, the, the life skills. Um, I find that for many of our folks, they're ill-prepared when it comes to just independent living skills, mm. um, whether it be budgeting, whether it be general activities of daily living, whether it be um, organizational or executive function support. Many of these things have been done for them for, for quite a while. So mm. it's learning these skills that um, also have a lot of shame attached to it. Nobody mm. likes to admit that they don't know how to take the trash out or they don't know how to use the laundry. Mm -hmm. But that's a very real reality that mm -hmm. if you don't know how to do and you're living independently, it's going to catch up with you and it's going to yeah. impede on your ability to sustain your own independence. Yeah, we we, we see at AIMHOUSE quite a few um, white shirts turn pink. Yeah. You know, we see, And that's okay. Like, that's okay. It's like, that's how you learn. It's like, so if you don't mix the colors, you end up with a pink shirt it's and that's the new cool white. to make a pink shirt. But this is how it works. It's Absolutely. like, it's running on that. It's, it's always fascinating for me when I, when I talk to parents in particular and and I asked them, you know, at what point in your life did you really build character? Mm. Did you really build that resiliency that, that we're talking about your son or daughter needing? And, and almost across the board, they'll tell me, it's when I was eating cup of noodles. Yeah. It's when I was struggling. Right. That's when I learned it. Yeah. And so why are we as a culture protecting our children yeah. from those experiences in, in in the name of love like with really really good intention always we're kind of handicapping people with basic skills yeah. which only come from experience and adversity yes you know yes and that adversity is good but that we don't really as a society that's not the way that we market adversity mm -hmm. we market it as symptomatic right yeah. we market it as something different than that, and to, to a tremendous disservice. And also, how does it reflect on the parents? Right, right. If your community is watching right. your son or daughter experiencing right. adversity, right. how does that look yeah. for you? Yeah, well, even, even just the bizarreness of it. You know, I, I, um, my my 18-year-old daughter's in the, the college application mm -hmm. you know, process, and she's a good student and has applied to great schools and blah, 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 whatever. Um, and I don't mean whatever. I mean, I'm proud of her. It's great and all that. But I, I'm real clear on something. Her achievements and where she's going to college and which one she chooses and all this stuff mm -hmm. has next to nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. And I know this is evidenced by I have four kids and some of my kids are really into school and some aren't. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, like it, it goes all over the place. Yeah. Um, but observing and watching, it's kind of hot in the news this week with the kind of buying people into schools yeah, and this, yeah. this, this, this stuff that's going on. By the time someone's listening to this, it'll be old news. But 
it's um, I see it in this form of like these children become these ego extensions for mm-hmm. the parent that somehow that somehow your value and worth is based upon where your kid is going to school. And in a lot of these cases, these kids are clueless that their parents were cheating the system to even mm-hmm. get them in. Mm-hmm. That's another huge disservice. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, here, cut the line. You know, there was no line. It's just, um, it's kind of astounding to me how much we project. And I get it. I mean, I, I do it too. I'm watching my son play basketball. I'm like, got feelings and stuff, right? But it's not... It's not my experience. It's their life. Like, it's a different type of a thing. And I think as parents, we can put up some guardrails maybe and, you know, some structure and direction and boundaries of certain things. But the rest of who they're developing and becoming is has to do with who they are. And it takes a fair amount of patience and tolerance of our own anxiety to... Tolerate the ambiguity with that. Yep. That for, for, for most of us, similar to the cup of noodle story, you ask people, you know, how did you arrive to where you are today? And there's all these twists and turns. And I thought I was going here and then I didn't, or I was in Tokyo and I thought I'd be there, but then I ended up in there and that introduced me to this person. So life unfolds in these really amazing ways, but we still live with this illusion that we can control that or manage mm-hmm. that for other people. Mm-hmm. And that along with motivation, I'm kind of obsessed with. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, this concept of motivation. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm interested to ask you, like, what do you think creates motivation for people? It's a great question. I, I Before I jump into motivation, yeah, yeah. I, um, I have uh, two-and-a-half-year-old twin boys, yeah. and we're raising them in New York City. And so this experience that you're having with your daughter around college applications, it's fascinating culturally how young that starts in certain aren't, cities. Aren't preschools competitive in New York City? I've heard that, that uh, where your kid goes to preschool is actually indicative of where they're going to end up in college. But that's literally the correlation <laughs> that that is that is made. And so you even look at it from a, from a treatment perspective and how difficult it would be to um, derail your child that is on this quote-unquote track, right? Because to your point, the preschool correlates with the university. Um, you can imagine. Which I just got a name. is fucking insane. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. That is so crazy. Thank Kids you. need to learn to play. Yeah. That's really, especially before five or six, yeah. the only important thing is play. Yeah. So parents, please don't worry about that. <laughs> Keep going. Thank you. Thank you. And the motivation, <laughs> I, you know, to, to your point, I, I think as, as a as – a, a, a a culture right now, I, I think there's so much pressure that for a lot of these young people they're experiencing, they don't necessarily identify their life as their own. And I think that's the hardest challenge that young people face nowadays is they're living somebody else's life. Mm. They're living somebody else's idea of what they think should um, be happening you know, within someone else's time frame. And I always find it fascinating. One of the first questions we ask folks when they start at the dorm is, what do you want? And at times, it can take them two or three months mm. to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Many of them have never been asked. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even if I could tell you, John, what I want, right. how do I do it? Right, right. Like, how does that even No, John, you're you're hitting it on the nose. That's the first question I ask anybody that I've worked with is, "What do you want to do?" Yeah, and they 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 tell me all the things they either can't do, don't want to do, or afraid to do. 
But there's not even, it's like, that's not even a possibility. Yep. What do you mean I get to author my own life? What? And that's what I think where community really comes into this because then they can see people yeah. that have actually done it right. or are doing it. Right. And when you talk about motivation, that's where that's where I see the spark yeah. happen. It yeah. really ignites when they key into this reality that, wow, I'm, I'm in the driver's seat. Yeah. Right, yeah. and and it could be the driver's ed car where somebody else has got a break. Yeah, right, <laughs> next to right, them. right. Like so one of those training vehicles, yeah. Part of it, right? right. It there's, becomes like this hurry up offense to yeah. make up for lost time, and yeah. I think you know we need to to pace that process, um, but sort of ignite on this reality that not only can I do this, but also my family is going to support it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a great example of a of a young woman that that came to us. Um, you know, was was in a very elite college and and took some time off. And you can imagine there was a lot of attention and interest around getting her back as as quickly as possible. Um, And we asked her what she wanted to do. And she said, I want to go to beauty school. And helping the family to make that correlation between allowing her to go to beauty school allowing her to figure out, all right, how do I actually get up for something I mm-hmm, like to do? Mm-hmm. How do I study for mm-hmm. an actual test? Mm-hmm. You know, w- without all of the support that she had previously had. Mm-hmm. And what was fascinating is she she ended up after beauty school getting a job, realizing I do want to go and get my undergraduate degree. Mm-hmm. So ending up back in the original college, coming full circle. But when she landed back there, she was able to do it independently mm-hmm. because she was motivated mm-hmm. and she was connected to that mm-hmm. that reality as, as being her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like when we throw away our watch and use a compass, I say that all the time, <laughs> like that's this time limit that I'm supposed to be a junior, I'm yeah. supposed to be, and those supposed to be, I keep telling people, like it never stops, right? I'm supposed to be in a country club, I'm supposed to be on a board of a company, I'm supposed yeah. to be, like the, the supposed to be never really stop. Mm-hmm. If the path is really about others' achievement or or status outside of yourself or something that is this illusion that's going to make you whole yeah. based on what you do. And from my experience, and anyway, personally, and with working with people, like it's got to start in here yep. and come out. And anything that's coming in and coming that way, it's not that it has bad intention or it doesn't work. It's just that you know you can't. You can't lead people to change something mm-hmm. unless they happen to be invested in that change. Mm-hmm. And I'd go even further. I think they they have to feel good about it or be moving towards something that feels good. Like yep. people are motivated towards feeling good, yep. but they're not necessarily motivated from the sense of deprivation. So, you know, you take young adults like we both work with and yep. suddenly you say, Okay, well, substances, nope, those are out. And some of these other choices for a while, those are out. And there's this other piece. Well, mm-hmm. well, what what begins to replace those things, mm-hmm. right? And where does that lead to? If I'm just taking something away and not adding something to it or a choice, it doesn't feel like a very good deal, yep. right? Like how you're taking away my coping mechanisms. What yep. the hell are you replacing them with, yep. right? But that when people start to experience the freedom that mm-hmm. comes from that, mm-hmm. And the autonomy that starts to come from that and the choices that start to come from that, well, then that now I'm replacing it with something that feels good. So the yep. other choices become worthwhile. But bridging yep. that gap and working with all those resistances, I think that's what treatment's about, yep. right? That's kind and of what we're... feeling the feeling, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. You asked the point, what's changed? Um, I think as uh, when, when I look at young people, many of them have no idea how to be bored. No idea. Exactly. They have no idea how to feel. Right. 
they, they, there's a fix for just about every right. feeling out there, right? right? And the whole name of the game is escaping from it. Right. So like sitting with self yeah. is something that I find to be such a foreign concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, being able to tolerate a feeling, being able to sit with a feeling mm. um, is something that, that we really encourage. And when you talk about sort of what has changed, you look at technology, you look at FOMO, you look at, you know, uh, yeah. social media, we're, we're, we're sort of attaching our insides to other people's outsides 100%. and how they represent themselves on this platform. And we can never possibly keep up. Right. The bar is always accelerated. Right. And I think when I look at, at sort of transitional support, you know, I, I love the idea of wilderness. I love the idea of sort of tapping into that inner self um, and helping people to, to come out of that um, and being able to remain mindful mm. and centered in self mm. and giving themselves those opportunities right in the heart mm -hmm. of a major city. Yeah. Like yeah. even like when you're walking down the street, look up and see the sky. Right. Right. It's there. Right. 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 <laughs> well, and that all of it is grist for the mill, right? All of it. Like all of it's grist for the mill. It's not these because yeah, I agree with you. It's sort of like um and I love wilderness for the right person. I mean, I think it's a great thing yeah. for the right person. And I think going away to treatment has its place and and is excellent. But it's the 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 rubber meets the road when you're you have choices again. And traditionally I think we've set ourselves up to even the model, right? Like you go out and get fixed over there and then aftercare. That's just sort of where you kind of, you know, just, you know, you just do all the stuff you learned over there. Well, it's not that easy yeah. because this is where you're triggered and you have coworkers who treat you poorly sometimes yeah. and you've yeah. got roommates that annoy you and you're in relationships like sober and you're like, what? Sex and these things sober? What? Like yeah. there's all of this stuff that that's, those are the pieces that really need to be integrated. And so- you know, it makes me so happy. Like, I'm so happy you're doing what you're doing. I, I really am. And I know it's similar in many ways to, to what we do. But to me, it, it can't be enough because it wasn't, believe me, 20 years ago, there were none that were in any cities. Like, yep. And this was considered a big city, yep. <laughs> this, yep. little, this little town, you yep. know, because the idea that you would actually have people in an environment while they're working through this just seemed crazy to yep. people. Right. But to me, it seems crazy not to. Yep. Like, so where do you go? You're going to be going from like no choices to infinite choices. And then we wonder why outcomes don't look like it's crazy. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's kind of nuts. And I think that's the, that's the message to families is, you know, where there's a concentration of people and right. certainly folks. I even looked at it when they legalized marijuana yeah. out here. Yeah. Um, to where there's a, a lot of folks active, yeah. right, yeah. around yeah. certain yeah. usage there's going to be just as many that are engaged in, in recovery. Uh, absolutely. And what we find in New York City is is the fellowship and the accessibility of recovery is beyond anything I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a great meeting called Never Had a Legal Drink. And it's, you know, uh, it, it appeals to folks that are getting sober before they're 21. Absolutely. What um, a great meeting. And it's packed. What a great meeting. Right? It's packed. So. Yeah. I just, I, I, you don't I even have that accessibility someplace else. Like you can't, like New York's like one of the only places where you could have that many people in yeah. that meeting. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's beyond just the, the sort of uh, the, the recovery aspect, 
when you look at the community aspect, we, we just find it's extremely rich. Yeah. Being able to find people that are, you know, making choices that are very much aligned and showing you that it's okay. Yeah. And not only is it okay, but showing you how to have fun, showing you yeah. how to re-engage in life. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's where the, that's where the magic happens. So. Absolutely. All right, your turn. You, you wanted to ask me questions. I did. Okay. So I want to, I want to hear about the title of of your podcast. Yeah. I can't help you. Yeah. Tell me about that. So obviously I want to help people, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, I've spent my entire career kind of, you know, trying to help people find a path for themselves, help people look beyond their diagnosis to mm -hmm. their assets and who they are and, um, and create as much opportunity for that to happen as possible. So the desire is always there mm -hmm. to be helpful, mm -hmm. to be useful. Um, along the course of, of, of my career, but especially with Aim House, like early in the, like I used to go up and down tremendously with if clients were struggling, I struggle. Kind of like that idea of like you're only as happy as your most unhappy child, that kind okay. of thing. Like it, I was more like I'm only happy I'm only as happy as my most unhappy client. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. so when I would get the mail, you know, the mail that like you saved my kid's life and things are great and these are all these things. That was like the greatest drug on the face of the planet. <laughs> like better than any yep. drug I ever tried and believe me I tried them all. So so I was like, God, that's just so amazing. And this sort of underachieving young person, I got into the work the same way you did, yep. you know, through the school of hard knocks and my own experience, um, suddenly went from this place of like feeling kind of useless in the world to, wow, uh, my benefit can experience, my, yeah. can help others and, yeah. and, and help people. So, but then I also went through some, some horrible experiences, which you do over the course of if you've worked with thousands of people, you have different things that happen to different people, and you obviously don't have control over all of that. So there was two or three incidences of um, some wonderful human beings who had suicided that mm -hmm. I had worked with years previously. And it threw me to the mat, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, me, who cares? Their family, them. I mean, it was unbelievable. But but it also, you know, I, I showed up and I went to these funerals. And um, and I was sitting there feeling like an absolute failure. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm about saving lives, mm -hmm. right? And, and though I didn't feel like I was liable or anything like that, it mm -hmm. was kind of like, what happens when the magic doesn't work? Mm -hmm. and, and, and what about this part of the shadow of it, too? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. know, that if we're... As an industry, or as a bit, and you're looking at it like I tried to stay involved, take the mm -hmm. call, mm -hmm. be around, be present, even if in a situation like that. And I found it meant a lot to parents that I would actually be there at the funeral and I would like show up. No question. But inside, it was kind of like this. I went through some torture with mm -hmm. this stuff, and I was working with somebody, a mentor at the time, who said to me, "If you are going to take full responsibility for everybody who doesn't quote unquote succeed." Mm -hmm or get on a pathway of recovery or mm -hmm. get help or whatever that is, um, you know, then you have to take full responsibility for everybody that's done really well mm -hmm. too. And mm -hmm. can you look me in the eye and tell me you can take full responsibility that in other words, it was because of you that Lauren's doing well. Mm -hmm. It was because of you that somebody else is doing well. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, it was crystal clear to me. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I provide the opportunity. I provide the resources. I can't choose for you. Mm -hmm. I can't choose the path that you that you go through. So 
it's not my credit to take that's to rob somebody of their own dignity and experience and accomplishments, right? Mm-hmm. Which they were so lacking, which was part of the reason why I got, right? But it's not because of me. Yeah. It's just I'm a player in this larger, larger piece, which then led to a bunch of different thoughts, which is just basically that both in my own experience, whether I've been through therapy or working with sponsors or any of these other things, what mm-hmm. became pretty crystal clear to me is that people could set the table for me, but I had to walk through mm-hmm. Those are two mixed analogies. I had to eat the meal or whatever. I, I had to go through whatever I, I went through. And so, so it became a relief for me to realize that my job isn't to help people, mm. right? My job is to provide as much information and opportunity for alternative choices for, for people. Mm-hmm. And so it's obviously just a play on words. It doesn't really matter, but it's a pretty direct statement about, I'm not going to take the credit for your success mm-hmm. and I'm not going to take the credit for your failure. Mm-hmm. Like your life is your life. And if anybody else, your parents, me, anybody, the program takes ownership or credit for that or mm-hmm. a podcast or any of that stuff, mm-hmm. um, then, then we're robbing you of your own dignity and experience yep. and, and consequences of it, positive, negative, whatever that is. So, yep. so it's a pretty extreme view of it, but I don't really think you can actually help. It's, it's just like I have another thing. I don't really think people change. Mm. I think we are who we are. Mm. Um, recovery to me is more about you know, getting rid of the parts that aren't you mm-hmm. versus like, you know, um, becoming somebody that you really weren't. It might feel mm-hmm. like that, but in reality, I think you're actually being you. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm being me in recovery. I'm not masked with a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's my best attempt to answer it. It does. Yeah. It does. I, I think it speaks to, you mentioned the, the, the point around motivation. Yeah. And I think for a lot of these folks, other people have been taking credit, mm-hmm. or at least there's been this idea that it sort of it, it, it takes a village, so it's the village that's responsible. Mm. And to your point, getting back to to, to self, it being you, mm-hmm. and there's an accountability mm-hmm. to self that's mm-hmm. attached to it. So and and that very powerful message, which I think is real, is like you get to choose. Yes, you really get to choose. Like I can't write your book for you, and you can, and you can. And people are doing it every day. Yeah. So let's surround people with people who are doing that. Let's mm-hmm. expose it as much as possible. Let's mm-hmm. tell the stories of it. And so I'm very into the stories. That's mm-hmm. why you know, talking to you and talking to people who come on here, mm-hmm. just the hope that people might hear something from somebody along mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. helps, like helps, that presents an opportunity to mm-hmm. recognize that we have a choice to do something differently. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in that choice, we probably will feel a whole lot better. Yeah. You know, You bring up a great point around this feeling that I that I think a lot of families face, and that's this idea of not being enough mm-hmm. for the folks that we have, that haven't taken yeah. that road, right. right? They don't necessarily make that choice. And, and there's a couple of things, unfortunately, that are promised in that reality, and none of them are pretty. Right. And there's always folks left behind, whether there's providers or family members of feeling like, what if, mm-hmm. um, or you know, really not being enough, and mm-hmm. and I think it sounds like you've done your own work around that, and certainly it's been a part of my own as well as a practitioner, and um, being able to recognize that that this is their life, mm-hmm. and I can't work any harder mm-hmm. on any one person mm-hmm. than they're willing to work on themselves. A hundred percent. As much as I want to, absolutely. As a people pleaser, and I would do it for that, you if I could. Totally. Um, <laughs> I tried. I've, I've tried <laughs> for years. <laughs> yeah. For years. Yeah. And it and it and it doesn't work. So, yeah. um, no, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in, 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 and along with that was a little bit of a relief that, um, no, we're not making widgets in what we do by any stretch, but there is a craft, and there is a, um, uh, in, in, in that craft, to develop that craft for, for, for us, I would argue, is about continuing to improve opportunity, mm-hmm. various ways to access self, mm-hmm. various mm-hmm. ways to access um, perspective, mm-hmm. insight, all of those kinds of things. And mm-hmm. you keep working with that and you do it in all sorts of different ways. But you you continue to do that, not in spite of income, but uh, income outcomes, mm-hmm. but uh, not attached to them, but based on the outcomes that you have where they've been successful, you try to replicate those mm-hmm. things as much mm-hmm. as possible. But you keep doing the work regardless, you know? And so it, it became a relief to me to view it that way instead of the only time we succeed is when someone hits three home runs in a game. Like yep. that just isn't everyday life. Yep. It doesn't work that way. So it's it? like, let's embrace the struggle. Like the yeah. struggle is actually beautiful. Like the tension, the, all of the pieces that come with it. Yeah. Um, but but first we have to kind of undo this fairy tale that treatment looks like okay identified patient mm-hmm. you go here you get better everything's fine blah mm-hmm. blah 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 life isn't like that recovery's mm-hmm. not like that for anybody i know it's this yeah. jig jaggedy line and on the whole it's getting better and it's improving but but it's also harder cuz you're feeling yeah like if you're feeling your feelings it's harder <laughs> it's like you know but you gain confidence from that and some agency and you realize the next time that I got through that and some different synapses start to connect and yeah. things can become better. But but I think we do people a tremendous disservice by selling them some Pollyanna. It's just yeah. like life's not like that. It, it's, it can be much, much better and it can be really rich. But to live a life means to have, in my opinion, just means to have all of it, the Absolutely. sadness, the all of it, you know, the beauty of childbirth and the excruciating part about getting kids through an airport. Mm-hmm. All of it is a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> thing. How old are you, boy? You say two and a half? Two and a half. And what are their names? Sasan and Shapur. Hi, Sasan. Hi, Shapur. Hopefully you'll put on headphones so they can hear. <laughs> I'm sure they're listening at home I, uh, as they're grabbing an animal cracker absolutely. or something. <laughs> one of my one of my first mentors, um, when I when I'd call him and say, you know, things are really difficult and I can't figure this out and I need help, he'd say, This too shall pass. Yeah. And then I'd call him a couple of months later and say, Oh, this worked out and I'm so excited and you know what he'd say? This too shall this pass. This too shall pass. <laughs> and that's the beauty of of, of life. Yeah, right? it's weather. Recognizing that we can weather it. Right. Um, right. So Right. Sunny days, cloudy days. I can take them personally if I want to, but they're happening whether or not, right? No question. Yeah. It seems like um you and I also have um a, a personal passion around working with universities. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's it's an interesting time mm-hmm. that we're living in right now mm-hmm. where universities are recognizing mm-hmm. more and more mm-hmm. um, much higher rates of acuity. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. University students that get into college that are ill-equipped, mm-hmm. um, families that are saying, look, my kids got in, so mm-hmm. that somehow implies that right. they should go. Right. Um, <laughs> and how do we grapple with this reality that mm-hmm. You know, uh, universities are, are are never going to be able to support mm-hmm. you know the increasing demand. Mm-hmm. Even the most well resourced mm-hmm. ones mm-hmm. can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have this growing community of young adult programs mm-hmm. that are in places like Boulder. Mm-hmm. And I really commend you for what you guys have created with CU um, and the presence that you have on campus. And can only imagine how that's impacted culture. 
Where do you hope to see this in three to five years? When you look at higher education, when you look at the young adult need and mm -hmm. treatment resources, where, where do you hope to see this? Well, a couple of things. What I really hope is that we start younger. Like okay. I'm kind of at a point in my career where I'm like, okay, I love what we do. And I'm also interested in how we keep people out of treatment, actually. Mm. <laughs> like how we put ourselves all out of business. Mm -hmm. Like I think if we could, I don't think that that will happen entirely, mm -hmm. but I think um, sort of surrendering to, um, surrendering to it's just getting worse and it's going to get worse and we better resource it. That doesn't feel inspiring to me but what does feel inspiring to me is you know providing the support that's needed for people when they have it mm -hmm. but also kind of waking up from this fog and conversations like we're happening having like where where we get over this there is no longer some normal and i don't know if there ever really was a normal but this idea that come 18 19 years old mm -hmm. somehow your trajectory is supposed to be set in the vast majority that's just not the case mm -hmm. and yeah, so they're showing up on campus, you know, having not experienced adversity, going back to the beginning of our conversation, and then you're in a dorm room for the first time ever and awkward smells and whatever that is and a roommate you don't know and all this stuff. And then, you know, what do you have to feel comfortable? The low-hanging fruit is, mm -hmm. you know, drink and use yeah. and do, yeah. right? And, and I'm speaking in general terms, but that's yeah. kind of what it looks like. And then, then we say, we call it this thing called college, the best time of your life mm -hmm. where it's totally okay to binge drink and it's totally okay to do. And I'm not making a judgment on that. Mm -hmm. I, don't, mm -hmm. it, it, I don't care. I mean, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. Mm -hmm. But if you look at what the rituals that we have that say, welcome to young adulthood, it's kind of sad, you know? Like, like it's kind of sad. It's like, go to college, figure it out, rage with a bunch of people, and then go do some job you hate for the rest of your life. Yeah. So I think this generation, in addition to maybe um, not having had the benefits of, of adversity some mm -hmm. of the time and, and, and the, the lack of patience that comes with technology mm -hmm. and some of this other mm -hmm. stuff, sure, that all of that exists too. But I find, especially with this generation coming up, they're also looking at the big picture and going, mm. I'm not buying this scam, mm. man. I am not buying this, you know, here's the pathway and then you compromise. To, you rage in college and get all this out of your system so you can really compromise and be somebody you hate later. Mm -hmm. Like, what a raw deal, mm -hmm. right? And we shouldn't really be doing that in general. So I think college has to relook at what it is, mm. first of all. I don't think it's just about the students aren't prepared when they get there. Yeah. I think we have a very antiquated system mm -hmm. That's not particularly useful in 2019. Yeah. You know, so that's got to change. Yeah. And, um, and 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 how do we how do we nurture who people are rather than just shove information out and hope it comes out pretty good on the other end? Mm -hmm. So that's one of them. But in the meantime, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who need help at different levels. And yeah. We've been fortunate at the University of Colorado that um, from the chance on down that there's there's a real openness to acknowledging that mental health is real, that yeah. mental health issues are real. Um, and working both on a research and preventative, we're about to announce an incredible institute that's going to be um, that's really well endowed for some great people to to really be researching, you know, how do we build resilient folks and how do mm -hmm. how can we work in partnership and research mm -hmm. practice partnerships with agencies, schools and from an early age to really cultivate the sense of self in addition to other pieces. So mm -hmm. so to me that's that's where I'm super excited right now mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. is looking at okay what's all the stuff we learn in treatment and these elements of community and these things that are healing that you oh by the way have to get in a lot of trouble to access. Yeah. 
Like that seems kind of screwed up to me. Or you need to know right. that you need it yeah. in order to access and it. And to have the money and to be insured <laughs> and all these other things. Like like we in our world, we go, oh, yes, they go to treatment and da-da-da-da-da. Well, that's inaccessible for the vast majority yeah. Yeah. of Americans. We just happen to be privileged and we go, oh, okay, so the clients we work with are privileged and sounds like you were privileged, like I was relatively privileged. Mm-hmm. And so we, we view that as some normal functioning existence, I, I look at like, no, we, we have to start younger. We mm. need to, in schools, be talking about the person as a whole. Mm-hmm. We need to spend some time really looking at social-emotional learning in ways that are impactful and meaningful, and not just as one-off programs, but as implementing them into systems a, a, as an entirety and as a whole. Mm-hmm. And then speaking to the, to the piece just about universities, I think what's been astounding for our journey there has been that when we created the Collegiate Recovery Center, you know, I never in a million years would have expected that also students who just choose to not use drugs and alcohol want to mm-hmm. come by mm-hmm. and actually become part of the community. Mm-hmm. I never would have thought that. I didn't even think they existed, yeah. right? But they do in actually pretty large numbers. And that it's attractive to a bunch of students to feel a sense of connection, whether they're going bowling or to an escape room or to the football game or whatever. Yeah. So that there really is a sense to build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. And I think rather than putting all the attention on how do we work with the acuity and pull people out and mm-hmm. for that 1% that can actually afford it, yeah. I think the, the energy for colleges need to be around how do we foster that sense of community from the beginning? Mm-hmm. How do we, in those first five days of homesickness, anticipate that? Not necessarily with activity, but with mm-hmm. connection mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. with the ability to carry that through and mm-hmm. to, to organize cohorts and support like you have in wilderness, like you have in treatment, like mm-hmm. you have in these mm-hmm. other places. Not to delve in and do deep work necessarily, but just to deal with the reality of what it's like, that it's mm-hmm. scary. A year ago, I was in a high school, mom was making breakfast, and now I'm here and this is <laughs> like, what? You know, and people dress different. And I yep. got all these clothes and I'm not going to wear any of them because I thought that, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And can we normalize that? Can we normalize that it's okay to struggle, mm-hmm. that it's okay to have all these different feelings? Mm-hmm. And so you're going to regret asking me the question, but that's my long, that's my long-winded answer. Absolutely. It's great to be on your show, by the way. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming, Dan. <laughs> yeah. How about you? What do you think about those things? Yeah. <sighs> You know, I, I think the ideal is, is is what you're talking about. Right. No question, right? That we start changing culture is is really what you're talking about, right? I, I love the fact that you know we're 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 losing stigma more and more yeah. around mental health, and yeah. and that excites me. Me too. Universities, I think, are a little afraid of that because it's the norm now to be mm-hmm. in therapy. So mm-hmm. they're flocking to university mm-hmm. counseling centers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can't treat them all. They, they can't, can't treat them all. Right. It's impossible, right? right? Um, so I, I think it's exciting that, that you know, some of the stigma is, is being removed. I'm excited to see how we reframe the term recovery. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I'm seeing universities certainly attach more to pieces around addiction in particular which historically has been, you know, one of the areas that college mental health has, has usually shied away from. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Addiction in general. Yeah. Um, whereas we're seeing much more mental health, mm-hmm. pure mental health, psychotic breaks, mm-hmm. a lot of OCD symptoms, a lot mm-hmm. of personality traits, um, a lot of social anxiety, even mm-hmm. folks not on trauma, the spectrum. Trauma, trauma, trauma. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So h- how, do we, how do we deal with this? And mm-hmm. I... I, I you know, I think this is how we started our conversation and understanding that community 
you know, can and is medicine? Mm. And is there a way to build community, to build sort of this clubhouse type mentality to mm. bring people together? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last piece, I'm a big believer in gap years. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I think there's there's this this mentality that somehow, you know, you, you got to be in college mm. at 18, 19, um, that there's a rite of passage to mm. your point mm. and partying and, and doing mm. this and that. Like, what if we can redefine the paradigm here? Mm. And I think I'm seeing more of an openness mm. around this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys have created Made Life here and, you know, different opportunities that are um, creative in nature, that are, you know, building resilience, that are building a lot of these skills that we know are, are, are really necessary. And I got to say, as an employer myself, I, I pay attention to. Oh, sure. Um, you know, folks that were willing to take a year yeah. and do something yeah. interesting that, yeah. that really spoke to themselves mm. and their own personal passions. Mm. That that speaks to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I I'd like to see more of that. So I'm 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 with you. I think there's there's a lot of work there. I, I think we're seeing certainly some some positives in terms of cultural shifts. I'm excited to see that universities are speaking more of a wellness type yeah. um, language mm-hmm. than they were historically. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's integrating it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. integrating the university college counseling. It's integrating this wellness. It's creating culture mm-hmm. um, and hopefully accessing resources like CU has done with you that can come in and and, and bring some pe- best practices mm-hmm. that you've learned mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. And help to, to create that on, mm-hmm. on college campus. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think when you were speaking about that, I was thinking about in the clubhouse and all this other stuff. I think this idea of like integration is so important, not just um, in terms of work, but the, the way we cancel out stigma is we create space in mm-hmm. a sense, I think, because stigma is this thing that lives within our head and in general perception, but it gets kind of canceled out in community for the people who are there, but also for people on the outside who come and look at a community and they go, oh, wow, this is nothing like what I thought. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just gonna be a bunch of people jonesing in a room and figuring out and everybody chain smokes and it's yeah. just this great, yeah. they, they have a different perception of what it actually is and that begins to change the face of it. And that, that happens because people tell their story yeah. and they're out and, and it's all out there. So yeah. it's pretty cool. And I'm, I'm excited to see where the next, I'm, I feel very hopeful you know, I, I like, I think there's a whole new, the new generation of clinicians coming up. I'm, mm-hmm. It's fun to see and to see creative programs like yours. Mm-hmm. And um, I can't wait to get out there and see it. I want to visit next time for sure. Absolutely. Spend some time. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm inspired by what's coming because I think overall there's a movement towards integrating into what traditionally have been places where you wouldn't talk about those types mm-hmm. of things, the workplace mm-hmm. and, and schools and, and having it all come out. I think that that's the benefit to sort of this critical mass that's pushing mental health up against its own boundaries is no that question. you start to realize this isn't just about treating mental health. This is about we're a crazy freaking society that's churning out people who are feeling really insecure. So can mm-hmm. we like look at what this actually is and how systemically we can address mm-hmm. this similar to when we first started people to treatment, they go, well, wait a minute, we got to work with the family. And it was like this revel- revelation, like, yep. oh, people get yep. better in a family. Well, it's much wider than that. It's actually the entire community and it's the yep. entire thing. So it's it's all of our concern. Yep. 
And I think we all have it. I think we all have mental health issues. I don't, I don't, well, I have mental health. Of course you have mental health issues. You're a human being on a confusing <laughs> planet and you've got conflicting feelings and impulses. Yeah. You have mental health issues, right? And I know that they go on extremes, of course. Some need to be medicated. And I get all that. But it's just this idea that somehow there's a they versus a we. And I see that, that line starting to, 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 to get a little bit redefined. And I think that that's going to have a positive benefit for people's mental health overall. No question. Hoping. So, no question. Man, I could do this all day. we got to wrap. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. And I uh, look forward to visiting you in New York. And thanks for taking the time to come come see us out here. And Can't wait. congratulations on the dorm. It sounds great. Thank and um, looking forward to, to learning more about it firsthand. So, Thank you. It's yeah. great to be here. Have a great rest of your trip. Appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Once again, this is the I Can't Help You podcast. You know why it's named that now, hopefully, or you're more confused as to why it's named that now. We're being brought to you from the Midlife Studios in Boulder. I want to say thank you to Lauren, who will now tell you how you can contact us. Lauren. Hey, it's Lauren. You can find us on Facebook, Facebook group, uh, I Can't Help You podcast. We have a nice little Instagram going, kind of have a mean Lord aesthetic. I can't get it on iTunes, can I? Yes, you can. Oh. And on Spotify. Oh, that too. Yeah, no way. Yeah, so you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at I Can't Help You Pod. Please like us, follow us, Please rate like us. us. Please do it. Please, we like you. Also, shout out to Sweet Cow. We we love your ice cream. Yeah, we're still waiting for that sponsorship check. So waiting for a sponsorship check. <laughs> Same thing with um, Boxcar. Yeah, Great Boxcar, coffee. we like you too. We like you too. Mateo, I love your burgers. Also great breakfast burritos. Yep. And you know, if you don't mention you, maybe prove us wrong. Yeah. Prove us wrong. Yeah. Buy us off. Buy us off. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Of course, we're kidding there. And of course, the man behind the board, the chairman of the boards, Justin. Justin, thank you as always. Thank you, Danny. Justin, you want to give a shout out to any creative accelerator stuff? What do you got going on down here? Uh, yeah, actually, we, got a, we have a great student right now, Sarah Comer, who's starting her own clothing brand, just bought her own URL is constantly out in our front room printing and uh, fulfilling orders for people for this clothing that she's starting to design and put out, which is really cool. That's awesome. How do we find her stuff? Do you know that website offhand? Yeah. Um, the website, I I believe it's comadesign.com, but definitely check out Coma Design, starting with a K, K-O-M-A, design. Yeah, and if uh, if you're doing creative stuff out there, and anybody who came through Made Life, it might be listening. I know we got a bunch of musicians out there. You got new projects and stuff. Let us know. We're gonna we'll start plugging what you do on on, on the podcast as much as we can. Um, but mostly, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Springtime is around the corner. We can feel it. It's coming. It's good. And I really appreciate everybody tuning in. And um, we'll come back at you next time. And thanks again for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right.